0: Hello listeners and welcome to what is now the fourth season of Pebble in the Pond podcast. We appreciate your support throughout the first three seasons uh, as we get our listenership up towards that sixteen thousand mark. Uh, thank you everybody. We appreciate it and um, yeah and what a privilege it is to bring you uh, these stories from amazing people. We are here and we are aiming to create a ripple for change for mental health. My name is Sam Stewart, and I am the CEO of the Australian and New Zealand Mental Health Association. Each year, our association hosts several leading mental health conferences that allow us the chance to meet and connect with the most fascinating and and accomplished people in the mental health space. Listen in as we go one-on-one with the people changing the face of mental health in Australia and New Zealand. From lived experience speakers through to researchers, academics, leading community organisations and influential industry leaders. Our Pebble in the Pond podcast episodes may contain content, themes or topics of discussion that may be triggering for some listeners. If you feel you need any assistance with your mental health at any time, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 or visit the Get Help page for additional resources at anzmh.asn.au. Leadership is no longer about individual strength, but group strength. So what does leadership look like today when we're facing complexity and challenges in every direction? By activating a distributed leadership model with the methods to help people operate out of their comfort zone, model inclusive culture, and sharpen their critical curiosity for the unknown, you'll be taking steps to secure a strong future for your team and company. Holly Ransom is our guest today, talking about the leading edge Methods for thriving in uncertainty. Holly shares tips on energy versus time, getting comfortable being uncomfortable, critical curiosity, and design for inclusion. Holly is founder and CEO of consulting firm Emergent and has been named one of Australia's 100 most influential women by the Australian Financial Review. She's delivered a piece, Charter to the Dalai Lama, was Sir Richard Branson's nominee for Wired Magazine's Smart List of Future Game Changers to watch. And was awarded the US Embassy's Eleanor Roosevelt Award for Leadership Excellence in 2019. Holly Ransom, thanks so much for joining us and sharing your story and your journey with our listeners.
1: Thanks for having me, Sam.
0: I appreciate it. Do you want to tell our listeners a little bit of background about yourself? Because I read your backstory, but I'm really interested for you to share where you grew up, what it was like, and how you got to where you are today with what you're doing.
1: Yeah, big question to kick off with. Well, I grew up in Western Australia. I've been a Melbourne resident for about eight years now, I would say. So I grew up split between Perth, but every sort of childhood holiday down in the southwest where a lot of my extended family, my grandparents, all of that live. So Albany, Denmark way, for anyone who knows the west yeah. well. Are they still there? They are, yeah, so- yeah. Denmark is still the, the residence of most of them, including my grandparents who've been married for, what are we at this year, 71 years? Wow. If they make it to December this year. Sadly, declining health rapidly, but been a hell of a love story, the two of them, an amazing source of inspiration for me. And that's probably the most important part, I would say, of where I grew up or my influences, my grandparents and particularly my grandmother. My grandmother is a force in the best of ways and she was sort of the person from a very young age who I guess – made me acutely aware of the responsibility that I've got with my actions in the ripple effect that they put into motion in the world. I can still vividly remember and I often think there's something in the first thing you can remember in that it's sort of a, a little bit of a breadcrumb for where your life's going to go from there. I can remember shopping in a shopping centre in with my grandmother. We were checking out. We were getting some stuff to make lunch and I would have been four or five years old and we were in the line for the checkout. And the man who was in front of us in the queue, who was a giant in my perception at that age and stage Mm -hmm. of life, he was probably six foot, but he just seemed enormous at at that point. Mm -hmm. He was yelling at this poor girl that was on the checkout who'd evidently given him the wrong change. And for whatever reason, he'd chosen to really have a go at her about it. And before I knew it, my four foot tall grandmother, Dorothy, had sort of inserted herself between the giant and this poor girl on the checkout. And she'd pointed her finger up at this man and said, how dare you talk to that young woman like that? You apologize. And I don't think this guy had ever been told off in his life because he went quite flush in the cheeks and he, you know, took a second or two to collect himself and, you know, grabbed his stuff and mumbled sorry and wandered out of the store. And I just was rooted to the ground watching all this play out. Grandma proceeded like nothing had happened, paid for the bread and milk or whatever we were getting and wandered out of the store before she realised I wasn't still holding her hand. And she came back to collect me and I said, Grandma, that was so brave. Mm. And she said, honey, if you walk past it, you tell the world it's okay. Mm. And, you know, that was really significant. I didn't understand the full extent of what my grandmother had shared with me in that moment till many, many years later. But I think when you look at what I've chosen to do in my career, you can see that there are moments where I couldn't walk past it. And I decided, well, this is something I got to dig my heels in here and do something about and try and make a difference. And so my grandmother's early example has been really pivotal to shaping the choices that I've made in my life. I think the other thing is she was really pivotal to shaping my perspective on leadership because nothing about that scenario gave my grandmother the title or the authority to step in that moment. She wasn't store manager. She wasn't anywhere near the size of this person that she was you know, stepping in to, to respectfully readjust. And so for me, I think it was an early example of of leadership in action that each and every one of us with our choices every day can step up, can speak up, not walk past things. And that has an enormous ripple effect in the lives of others. And so it was really, I think, quite pivotal in shaping my early growing perspective of what leadership was well before I knew that, that word.
0: It, t- it takes a lot of courage, doesn't it? Oh, gosh, yeah. t- To do that. I mean, because it would be easy just to say, oh, mm-hmm. poor girl and, and feel that empathy or sympathy for her, sorry, in that moment but it's not until you you know your grandmother had the courage to actually do something about it that is so inspiring that takes a lot of courage is that is that sort of what started you on your journey then is that getting the confidence to be able to say you know what if if it has to be it's up to me and that you know like you said if you walk past it you you agree to it or you 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 approve it
1: yeah i think definitely this notion of you couldn't It was not okay to walk past things Mm. that weren't right without at least trying to do your bit to make them better. And so I think that played a really pivotal role. And then some early experiences in primary school and things like that. It was just sort of a math equation that made sense in my head. There's a problem, Mm -hmm. there's something I can do to help to play a role, and it can equal a better outcome. And I think ultimately I've been sort of obsessed with how you play with the different variables in that equation over my career to to amplify that impact you know when when i think about my period in social enterprise to make that self-sustaining when i think about the idea of working with some of the big nonprofits or on policy you know how do you set the system dead more, you know grow with greater effect or how do you think about doing things at a scale where they can support many more people than just a single intervention so i think it's always been a, a line of inquiry around that
0: when you left school, because you, you mentioned from the from what I've read that you had what Australians would call a typical growing up, you you had a typical experience, you know, mm-hmm. great family, and you know went to school, enjoyed sports, that sort of thing. But at what point when you left school did you go in a direction that's led to yet led you to where you are today?
1: Oh gosh, I don't know if there is one defining moment. I think these are the sorts of things in life that you can. Maybe write a story about when you look back and join the dots in a particular way where in reality, you know, probably I remember asking this to a lot of mentors in my 20s. I was convinced that I needed a plan, you know, that I needed to to know exactly how things were going to play out. And so I went and asked a lot of my mentors and I'd say, you know, what was your plan or, you know, how did you get here and was this always part of the plan and universally it came back, no, this wasn't part of the plan. This was never on the plan, you know? And so I think I, I ditched that idea that this is all, you know, a series of dominoes in life that tip in a particular direction. I've always described myself as having a strong sense of direction, but a loose hold of the reins. So yeah, I've always known sense. what I'm driven by I know what I what lights me up in terms of the things that need to be a part of my life for me to be fulfilled and to find joy and for me that's been the guiding force and at different points in my life that's played out in different roles and different responsibilities but I would say it's been far less you know oh this led to this or that was the defining moment there's a whole lot of things that have compounded you know in different ways
0: it, do, do the emotions play a role? Do you, do you do you let your emotions guide your decisions on where you go with things or do you – yeah, tell me a little bit about what's guiding you because you, you said you have a bit of a direction about where you want to head but do you just let things fall on your lap and be open to things and say yes to things that mm-hmm. felt right? I mean what guided you in those moments do you think?
1: It would be interesting. I think a lot of my mentors would say I'm very head-driven so okay. I am, am very cool. – goal-oriented and Mm. all those sorts of things. But I would say that some of the most defining decisions have been very much gut-led. So there's always an interplay, I think, whether it's the head coming in to rationalize the gut decision after the fact. Sometimes I almost think it's a little bit chicken and the egg. You know, you kind of know them both simultaneously, but one of them feels more right in the moment. And so you sort of honor whichever you feel more comfortable leaning on. But I think without question, you know, when I think about I'm very lucky that I love what I do and that's a really important driver for me. I have spoken quite publicly about the fact that I was diagnosed with clinical depression in my early 20s Yes, and one of the things that I think going through something like that recalibrates for you is you become a really fierce protector of your energy and you know what it's like to feel crap to feel rock bottom, to not want to get out of bed, you know, all those sorts of things. And I think when you go through something like that, you go, life is too short to be, you know, living in a way where I don't enjoy who I'm working with, when I don't enjoy what I'm doing, when I don't enjoy where my time is going, when I don't feel that all of that is, you know, lighting me up in the right sort of ways. And so I think in the most important of ways, that was a big recalibration moment for me. And it probably started to shift the way that I made decisions quite significantly because, you know, while I'd always had goals and things I was aiming at, the filter criteria for what I was working on from a goal standpoint changed really dramatically then. You know, yeah. things about, like emotions would not have played a role in my decision-making in my early 20s. They've absolutely played a, decision, a role in decision-making, a critical one ever since. So that was a big inflection point, I think.
0: So the turning point for you to pursue emergent or the leadership, the, the idea, the seed for this where you are today, do you think that was after your experience with depression or do you think you're on the path already and you went through that whilst you were going in the direction you were already going?
1: Good question. I don't know if it was sort of a confluence of a whole set of life things, okay. I would say. So probably a little bit of getting clearer on what I wanted and getting clearer on what I enjoyed and what brought me joy for that matter. One of my biggest drivers is, you know, always learning. I love this notion of, you know, unlimited curiosity. One of the things that running your own business does is make sure you get that in spades. You know, that you're mm. learning every day. You're playing in different industries with different clients. The buck stops with you. So there's a limitless nature to that learning piece that I didn't find was really fulfilled for me in other roles that I'd been in previously. So that was probably part of that role. I don't know if I was as clear on that it was always going to be my own business when I think about making that decision in 2015, which is a couple of years after I very fortunately fully recovered from my experience with depression. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I if I could have said I knew I was always going to run my own business because at the time it felt terrifying. At the time it felt, oh, my gosh, is this going to work? Am I going to be here for a quick minute or am, no. am I going to be here, as has been the case now, for eight years and or well, seven years and counting? Yeah. So I think one of the things that was really important about what happened with depression though was that it forced me to reset my foundations. It forced me to go back and do things like reestablish my relationship with the idea of vulnerability, which is not something I'd grown up with. I had a really unhealthy relationship with in a way that I never would have been able to be a successful entrepreneur had I not been wow. comfortable with being vulnerable, right? Like yeah. because that is part of – vulnerability is inherently linked with risk-taking. Risk-taking is inherently part of being an entrepreneur. So sure. there's, a, there's a whole element there. You know, there's there's so many pieces and things that I needed to – I needed to get healthier in myself in order that I could back myself to do what I did, which whenever you stand on the edge of a cliff and decide to jump off and see if you can, you know, land it, it's a scary thing and I think I had to be in a better place mentally and I had to have stronger foundations in order to do that. So it played a role but I don't think it was the definitive catalyst for, you know, the business step.
0: What do – I mean how do you define the experience of leadership? I mean is it something that you obtain throughout the process of life through the many things and doesn't like you said it doesn't have to be one course that tells you, oh, you're now a leader? I mean, tell me about your thoughts around leadership and how that played a role in your life to be—I mean—someone that's been so influential influ- influential in this space.
1: Yeah, I think it's it's an interesting word because our typical association with it, and I think still the way in a lot of spaces and senses we're anchored is sort of to almost an industrial model of leadership. So you think about these big giant conglomerates that we built during like the the industrial. Jack Welsh era of mm. GE, right, where it was lots of layers, layers of hierarchy and Even think about the learning model. You know, you kind of front-loaded your education and people typically didn't even spend their whole career in one industry. They often spend it at one company. You know, 30 years, collect your gold, wash, go off into retirement, right? And I think in that model, leadership was all about this idea that as you accumulated knowledge, you rose in rank because it was this sense of you climbed higher and higher up the tree, you had more of the set of answers. Now, that's not the model, I think, of leadership that holds at all in this world anymore and for a variety of reasons, you know, in part because we're in the knowledge economy and a lot of what we could, what well, a lot of what we can kind of define, we can automate. So technology has taken over a lot of kind of the set and forget stuff rapidly and will continue to over the journey ahead. So creativity, you know, the care factors that so many people listening to this podcast are so brilliantly gifted at. All those are the factors that the robots can't out-human us on. And so they become increasingly important part of leadership, of innovation, and of what distinguishes, I think, leading individuals and collective teams moving forward. I think leadership nowadays is a lot more about the questions that we're asking, and it's this notion that no one person's got a monopoly on the answers. We're actually finding increasingly that the answers are coming from places we didn't typically look There's a lot of research coming out of some of the world's leading business schools at the moment around what they call distance from the field, which is this idea that, you know, people who are almost removed from technical expertise, so as opposed to the PhDs and the people that 30 years in industry, they're the people that have come in from a complete side angle or different profession and have gone, hey, why do we do it like that? How about this? And they're finding that they're having breakthrough results in, you know, really protracted problem solving. So we're at a really different time and it's an interesting one, I think, because when you think about layers of hierarchy and this command and control leadership style that used to exist where you can kind of push your order down the layers of hierarchy hierarchy and people would follow suit. Nowadays I think with the poorest relationship we've got with people, we're in a much more kind of collaborative or distributed network. You've got to pull people to follow. You've got to be able to have a compelling vision that makes people go, yep, sign me up, I want to be a part of that, I want to follow that leader. And then you've got to walk the talk with the values and make them go, yeah, they're the real deal. You know, there's this desire, particularly amongst millennials and zeds coming through, this David and Goliath piece, which is a real love of bringing down a Goliath when they prove that they're not really living up to the way that they promise or what's written on the bumper sticker or the, you know, the corporate values or any of that sort of thing. So leadership's in a really interesting state of flux and my passion is around democratising leadership. I think we need a lot more people to see themselves in that work and to take on the responsibility and the opportunity that comes with that because we cannot make progress on the challenges that sit ahead of us as a global community, whether we're talking about things like the state of our health system in Australia or the mm-hmm. state of the mental health crisis, right the way through to climate change and issues on that global scale and everything in between, unless we can dramatically diversify who it is that believes they have a voice that matters, that they can ask questions that are valid and that believes they, their skills and capability are not only able to, but are necessary in solving problems.
0: So would you agree, Holly, that you don't necessarily, It's leadership's not about the title. No, Everybody's a leader in their own right and what they're doing and the choices they make every day. And you are in a position of influence where you can inspire other people through leadership.
1: Absolutely. I mean, everyone listening to this is a leader. I, I fundamentally believe that. It's just a question whether it's for better or worse, to be perfectly honest. Yeah. And, and by that, I mean, I mean, you think about even in the context of your family, your friend network, your your street if you're a connected neighbourhood or the community organisation that you volunteer with, your workplace. There are people that are looking to you for your opinion every day. There are people that are coming to you for their advice, whether it's on a personal or a professional matter. There are people that are watching you for cues on how to behave, how to show up. All of that is leadership. Mm. You know, we just need to reclaim that word in those senses because I think in some ways we've we've um, disconnected from the idea that all of that is an example of leadership.
0: You spoke a little bit before about the importance of questions, and I know you're a master questioner, but tell me about the importance of questions in leadership, asking great questions and seeking solutions. Or, I mean, is that important, do you think?
1: Oh, definitely. I mean, I think questions are the departure point for possibility, because it's only through asking questions that we open up our brain's problem solving capabilities. I mean, answers don't, answers are just sit there. It's like a full stop in a sentence where, you know, that notion of a question mark is there's an invitation to think, to explore, to engage, to converse. You know, for me, that's the the big power of questions. And then the important piece that then wraps around that is the diversity of the people that we have asking questions and the diversity of people that we're inviting responses from you know, the, the challenge of in asking a question in a room full of people have basically played a role in in all the previous answers or who look the same as us or, you know, all those sorts of things is we're not going to invite new possibility to enter the room. It's really critical that we're mindful of, you know, the way that we're asking the questions just as much as the nature of the question.
0: You know, it's an important thing, but that, that also stems from curiosity, doesn't it? So yeah. being curious that there are, you're open to other things and possibilities, but that curiosity Seemed for you as well, seemed to be ingrained from when you were a young child. So tell me about the importance of that curiosity piece in leadership.
1: Yeah, it's definitely been ingrained in me since a child. My grandma's often described me as forensically curious, and I think that's fair. I always wanted to make sense of things and understand. And I think my own curiosity comes from having grown up in a household that didn't really encourage those questions. So I always had to go and look outward. You know, I had to go ask questions, whether it was teachers, whether it was friends, whether it was, you know, community leaders or people I'd meet on the side of sporting games on the weekend. You know, the the world very quickly became my learning library. And I think, you know, for all leaders, you know, you look at the world right now and it's very evident that we don't have the solutions at this moment in time for the problems that sit before us. We have some of them. Definitely, some people that are making amazing progress and are points of light all around the world in their communities and in organisations, in, in national policy setting, you name it. But we're a long way off making significant collective progress. And so I think that importance for leaders of arming themselves with the ability to ask questions, arming themselves with the comfort to be vulnerable and say, I don't know, let's find out together. You know, leaders set an incredible tone as to whether or not they permit curiosity. You know, Sam, you're probably familiar with the work that was done by Project Aristotle at Google, where they went and looked at high-performing teams and they sort of said, okay, what's the secret source of high performance in a work context? And they pulled out these five criteria that they said actually, you know, I think when they'd gone in, they were thinking it would be management styles or there's a particular way that this group of people lead. There's a structure, there's a process. Mm. They found out it was all about leadership characteristics. There were five characteristics that they said every high-performing team in our organisation without fail has them. But number one is so important that it doesn't matter if you have two, three, four and five. If you don't have one, you can't get high performance. And number one was this idea of psychological safety. Is it safe to take risks? To show up.
0: Speak your mind. To
1: speak your mind, to ask questions. Mm. Or is that a career limiting move? Is that something you wouldn't dare do in this culture because that reveals that you don't know? And you wouldn't want to reveal you don't know because that, you know, looks looks like you're less or something like that. And so it's interesting that I think we're gonna see more and more of a conversation around this topic, this idea of psychological safety and how we create it in culture, because we're seeing more and more research that's saying. Not only is it inextricably linked to high performance, but it's also got an unbelievably important relationship to diversity and inclusion. Mm -hmm. Because when we look at homogenous teams, so groups of the same people versus diverse teams, in the absence of psychological safety, a homogenous team will outperform a diverse team. Now, that's kind of unsurprising because in order for a diverse team to show up and truly perform, they've got to be able to show up as who they are. They've got to be able to show up as the difference that we invited them to the table to be. But if we haven't created the conditions for them to feel safe to do that, to challenge, to offer a different view, to say, hey, why do we do it like that? Have we ever considered X? We're not going to get the benefit of that diversity. And so I think for these two reasons, we're going to see a lot of conversations around psychological safety, questioning, the idea of you know constructive curiosity and challenge in the next decade of business.
0: I mean, it's, it certainly makes sense that that's the way things should be anyway, doesn't it? I mean, when you look at, I guess it is a bit outdated when you go back to the way leadership used to be by rank and, and you weren't able to say, speak your mind and, and unless you're in a, p- a position of authority to do so. But tell me about, you spoke about it before, about distributed leadership. Is that like decentralized leadership where yeah. you actually push it down and empower people below, you know, on the org chart, but you but you empower people below you to be able to make decisions, to be able to contribute and to be able to drive their own, whatever they're in charge of in their, in their divisions or what have you. Is that what you're talking about with distributed leadership?
1: Yeah, definitely. So, okay. decentralized is a good way of putting it. So, the idea that we don't have a single source of authority, a single source of decision making. We have lots of nodes who are responsible yeah. and empowered to make decisions in their respective way. So, we've got guardrails and parameters. So, these might be things like values. These might yeah. be things like, you know, the, the basic expectations, obviously the strategy and what moves in line with that. But we're empowering the people that we've hired to lead, to make decisions, to be creators of culture and to move things forward in ways that absolutely align with all of that, but might not be prescriptively the same as how we as an individual might make them. So, you know, it's very much a more empowered structure with more autonomy for the way that people work in that.
0: And they'll feel more contribution, won't they? I mean, they feel like they're, they're contributing more to the organization, that they've got that flexibility that they're valued, Mm -hmm. their opinions valued, which really should be a win-win anyway for the organisation.
1: Totally. I mean, it's unsurprising to us and and this is where, you know, we often look at millennials as a tipping point in workplace culture. I think millennials just arrived at the right generational time and were a big enough generational force to probably reap the benefit and, and push some of the benefit in this direction. But I think no generation really ever enjoyed the idea of, you know, being worker number 3,753 or cog Mm. number 402 in the system, right? We all want to feel like what we do matters. We all want to belong Mm. and we all want to contribute. They're sort of fundamental human needs. And so absolutely this sense that if we can feel like not only what we do every day in terms of the the workplace that we contribute to, business that we run, whatever your engagement might be, the community organisation we volunteer with, that that – is making a positive contribution to the world. We also want to know that our contribution matters. Yeah. that it's significant to moving the dial to improving things, to playing a role in that. You know, we that that piece around purpose that we've really unlocked in the last decade decade and a half I think is allowing us to acknowledge that role, that, empower, that, that powerful fire that, that lights in the belly and just how significant that is. And and we see that, I mean, you, you know this better than I, but the, the research around mental health, particularly with men, and, you know, job and title and having a sense of purpose in a professional sense, it's got a huge correlation with men's mental health outcomes. So we, we know this stuff matters.
0: I agree. I completely agree with everything you're saying. If we look to now, let's look at the, the term stress mm. and, and how it relates to Well, it's, you know, whether it's leadership or, you know, successful workplaces, great cultures, how do great teams deal with stress or great leaders deal with stress? Mm -hmm. And, And what is it?
1: It's a great question. And I feel like this is a topic, it's a bit like how sleep we're suddenly starting to wake up to and all of a sudden we're seeing New York Times bestseller after New York Times bestseller that's talking about sleep. I feel like we're in the very early days of being more nuanced about stress because I think our conversation for a very long time was stress is bad. Avoid stress. That was the kind of literature for a very long time. And I think now we're starting to say actually it's a bit more complicated than that because we know high performance has a stress component in it, you know, whether we're looking at think even recently to, you know, Commonwealth Games performances by yep. people who gold medalled for Australia and New Zealand. There's no way that you could argue that when they were performing in the height of their competitive field there wasn't stress involved. Mm. So there's an element that we know that the right sort of stress, so those performance environments that those conditions around peak performance, there's a stress there around wanting to do your best, around the notion that it's the consequences are on the line for delivering or not delivering. That's very different to the idea of toxic categories of stress, like working in a workplace that, you know, is maybe mentally unsafe, whether there's or bullying harassment. going on or yep. harassment. Absolutely. And so I think we're seeing, firstly, a distinction between those two. Leaders in high-performing organisations, leaders in thriving organisations don't tolerate any of the toxic kind of stress. If they find people that are producers of that they move them off the bus really quickly. I think they're mindful of the notion of kind of setting expectations within the team and talking about what high performance looks like and so they've got a clear sense of why we're working hard, why we're under stress. You know, this is what we're working towards, this is the expectations, this is who we're delivering for. Stress without a purpose attached to it, particularly in a prolonged sense, Mm -hmm. is a very different thing to deal with to stress with a purpose attached where you understand why you're putting yourself through that. So I think leaders are very good at articulating that in high performance environments. And the other thing I would say, and this is an evolution, this is why I was saying I think this is new, increasingly I think leaders of high performance organisations are vulnerable about talking about their own experience of stress. Watching on the treadmill this morning, an all or nothing episode with Mikel Arteta. So going through the Arsenal series last year and you're watching them starting the season 3-0 down and he opens up right before they run out for their fourth game on the verge of the worst start in Premier League history. And he talks about, guys, I'm, I'm stressed. Like after our last loss, I was here mentally. And I want to talk to you about that. And I want to talk to you about how grateful I am for you and to you for pulling me out of it. And so this vulnerability and this acknowledgement of stress, I think, is something we're only just starting to see. And then it's, what are we doing about it? How are we naming what we turn to? So he, he then talks to the team about, well, here's how I turned my mind to gratitude. I thought about my family and I thought about this and I thought about the fact I have my health. And so that was helpful. And then I connected with all of you guys and in being in connection with you, it improved my mood. And so I think they're mindful of the idea as well, that we've got to think about vulnerable conversations and also being honest about our coping mechanisms. What are we doing and how are we creating permission to have conversations around stress and normalizing this idea that we've all got it and we all need to have outlets to process it that help us mentally and physically reset. And so I think this is an evolution of kind of workplace wellness and this conversation you're seeing, whether it's firms developing mindfulness programs, whether it's people off exercising, you know, all manner of things that people are implementing to to start helping this process along.
0: Do you think it's sort of somewhat linked to pressure and do you think that they're sort of along the same sort of paradigm, stress and pressure?
1: Yeah, I think there's definitely a relationship between the two, without question. I I think, you know, there's pressure does cause stress more often than not. In fact, almost without exception, it's sort of a rare individual and you almost look at them a bit quizzically when you see someone that's under extraordinary amount of pressure and tries to tell you that they're not remotely stressed. I think some of us are less tapped into ourselves. You know, you talked earlier about this idea of emotion and there's some people who are very good at compartmentalising and are very good at sort of almost being so headstrong that they fail to acknowledge the physiology of what they're going through. Mm -hmm. I saw this a lot growing up. I was a, a law student and worked a lot in the legal system during my university years. And I would meet person after person in the legal profession who was under pressure all the time, who convinced themselves that was A-OK, this is just how we work. And without exception, had had a relationship breakdown, a severe health crisis, or had some kind of major addiction. It was a coping mechanism. And they were all looking you straight in the eye and telling you without – you know, I think they passed a lie detector test, you know, telling you that they were A-OK – and you could look at the, the, the train wreck of what the pressure and the prolonged stress had caused. Mm. So I think it's a really interesting one. You know, I think we need to make it okay to talk about this stress and pressure and leaders normalizing that and then talking about this is what I do to work through it and yes. making sure that people that work with them have those outlets too. I, I think it's really critical.
0: Yeah. No, I like the way you put that. If I just, I know your book mentions it as well, but let's just talk about the energy versus time and when people ask people how they're doing and, and, you know, everyone reverts to, you know, I'm really busy, a lot lot going on and it seems to be the default. But tell me about how we let time sort of control our state these days instead of our energy and what we can do to, to reverse that.
1: Yeah, well, I think that says it all, doesn't it? I mean, I don't know when busy became an emotion but all of a sudden, it's become the majority of people's answer to that question. How are you? I'm busy. And I'm yeah. busy. I'm flat chat. I'm, you know, run off my feet, whatever it might be. And yeah. it's like, when did that question prompt a response about the state of your diary and not the state of how you're feeling? It's yeah. really interesting. So I've got a busy jar with my team. We ban the word busy. So it's like the swear jar equivalent. Because even that, it doesn't tell you anything. Like, it's a very catch-all word. You, you know, we need a much richer vocabulary to, pr- to truly get a sense of how people are and to check in properly. So I think, you know, one of the the mugs I bought a mentor of mine a few years back and the original version is like you have as many hours in the day as Picasso and Da Vinci and all these, you know, Mother Teresa. Yeah. Nowadays, I think it's you've got as many hours in the day as Beyonce, which is the modern <laughs> version. But it's true. I mean, time doesn't shift and change. And that was some of the early insights. A lot of this work around energy management comes out of sports science originally, where sports scientists were trying to work out and sports psychologists what is the difference between a world number one, world number 10, world number 100. It's not a difference in the time on court or the time in the pool or the time on the track, whatever their, their discipline was. They are in the gym for the same number of hours. They had, you know, predominantly the same diets and this mm-hmm. and that and the other. And the thing that they worked out that was the discerning factor was micro-recovery and the way that these athletes that were at the top manage these small pause moments. So people might think of things like Nadal and his particular number of ball bounces before he serves and things like that. Mm. That's all part of this notion of how he gears himself up to get peak energy in that next moment. And so, these small, sometimes matter of second breaks, they allow them to set up and go again and shift energy state. And so, I think there's a really interesting body of work in managing energy, not time. I'm a big believer in it. It's probably one of the most profound profound changes I've made in my own life. And I think, you know, broadly, the thing I would invite people to think about is we all have a natural energy rhythm. We've heard of the circadian rhythm. Many of you listening will know it better than I. So, what I invite you to do just for a week is be curious – When are your natural energy highs and when are your natural energy lows? And at the moment, how are you using them? And I want to invite you to think about whether during your high energy moments of the day or week, are you currently getting the return on energy you deserve? If you're putting it into emails, reconciling spreadsheets Mm. whatever else activity that is kind of mundane and repetitive and all that sort of stuff I can promise you you're not getting the return on energy you deserve so thinking about how that energy to begin with goes towards things that are key relationships creativity strategy working on not in you know that's an interesting observation in and of itself the second thing is to think about what is it that energizes you and how do you intentionally insert that insert that into every day what is it it journaling for some people, is it catching up with a friend, is it going for a walk with your dog, you name it, you've got to know what that looks like for you. And that can't be the thing that goes in at the end of the week on a Friday night after 9pm if you've still got time. That needs to be an energy building block. That idea that they talk to us all about now that we're allowed to get on planes again, we're re-reminded of it. You've got to put your own oxygen mask on first, right? So there's this whole piece around and I must say I often find this is one of the tougher one of the tougher sectors to have this conversation in is the healthcare, medical caring professions, yeah. right, where we're so good at looking after everyone else to the expense of ourselves and we turn around and the, the, the cost and toll is enormous on those individuals. So the thing I, I'm encouraged by is the research that's coming out around micro breaks because a lot of people hear that and say, yeah, cool, but I'd love to do that. I don't have an hour to go to yoga. I don't have X amount of time to do this, that and the other and I hear that and I know that's real the encouragement or the challenge I want to offer you is that don't let perfect be the enemy of the good. Mm. There's a lot of research that says it does not have to be an hour of yoga to be beneficial. It can be as simple as three deep breaths taken over 30 seconds. And if we've got bio trackers on you, you'll start to see positive benefits and changes in your physiology. It can be as simple as getting up between Zoom meetings or, you know, in a break between clients and walking to the end of the street and back and getting a little hit of vitamin D. All those sorts of things play a role. And so I'd encourage you just to think about what your energy circuit breaker is. What's something that takes under three minutes that you know makes you feel good Could be chucking on your favourite song and dancing around for a moment, you name it, there's no right or wrong here. And how do you make the effort to insert that a couple of times into your day? Start small and build momentum from there, but don't let the idea of the constraint of perfect stop you from even starting.
0: Some great tips there. I love that. Tell me a little bit. I've got a few things before we close up, but comfort zone. Mm-hmm. Tell us about the importance of getting out of the comfort zone in order to experience growth and development in, in people so that, you know, I, I feel like it's not till you get to that edge of the comfort zone. D- does life really start to, you know, do you start to grow as a human being and start to experience new things that can help change you for the better. But tell me about your perception on, on the comfort zone because I did read that you did something out of your comfort zone every day for a year.
1: <laughs> yes, my year of fear.
0: So so tell me a little bit about that in the comfort zone, please.
1: Yeah, sure. So that was motivated by reading a quote that said, it's the things that we're afraid of that we most need to do, which is kind of, I, I feel sometimes you hear things, you read things and they jar with you a little bit, like they make your gut a little bit uncomfortable. And that was one of those lines that did that for me. And so I went, oh, I've got to sit with this. There's something in this for me. So I called my best friend, who's the only person stupid enough for me to call with an idea. And he said yes before I told him what it was. And I said, how about we guinea pig it? Let's try it for a year. Let's, let's see what happens. And so we embarked on this year of fear where we spent the whole year doing things we were afraid of. And what's interesting is most people, we, didn't, we took about three months to tell anyone we were doing this. And most people then would ask the same question. They would say, well, how do you have enough stuff you're afraid of? And we went, are you kidding? Like, we've got a never-ending list. Like, what are you guys (laughs) talking about? We're talking about the same kind of fear, are we? I don't know. (laughs) Alice is pretty long. And what became really evident is that we've desensitized to the way fear shows up day to day. Mm. So for most of us, when we say words like fear and you play along if you're listening at home, you probably thought of something like, sharks or snakes or spiders or jumping out the side of a plane mm. or like don't get me wrong legitimate fears but unlikely to be getting between you and your goals if yeah. they are I'm very interested to know what you're doing on a daily basis mm. but this whole piece around what we worked out was it's a lot more every day and we need to resensitize to what those fears look like in order that we can actively choose to engage with them differently. Because Einstein said it best when he said the definition of insanity is thinking we can just keep living, working, doing the same thing and get a different result. Yes. So the only way to progress to get a different tomorrow to what we've got today is to change that up. But that can be pretty scary and overwhelming. So when you know, when I look at, back at our year of fear, it was a lot more about – Learning how to say no. I mentioned before vulnerability, embracing that idea, trying that on, practicing that in action in all different contexts. That was terrifying. That was real. That was life-changing. Being prepared to pitch ideas that I probably wouldn't have had the courage to breathe life into otherwise. Leaning into tough conversations. Being a beginner, actually, you know, stepping out and trying something, whether it was building a skill, engaging, embracing a new experience, where I was really out of my depth. We become increasingly accustomed as adults to feeling – secure Mm. and stable and like we've got all the answers. And as we talked about before, you know, we're operating a world of leadership now where we need to sit really comfortably with not having all the answers. So I would argue it's even less important what thing you pick intentionally that you want to work on. The more important part of this exercise is the actually go to work, building a habit of getting comfortable, being uncomfortable because I would argue that's the single most important habit leaders can be building in this day and age.
0: And your experience in that year was profound? Life-changing. Like
1: probably the most transformative thing I've ever done, in part Mm. because the cool thing when you do something you're afraid of is that when, firstly, the apocalypse doesn't happen, very encouraging. (laughs) Secondly, your comfort zone actually expands and it takes in entirely new territory in your courage zone. And so things I was afraid of two months earlier, three weeks earlier, all of a sudden become part of your wheelhouse. There's circumstances and situations where you can lead. You now feel comfortable using that skill. That's now something that doesn't even remotely frighten you if you found yourself responsible for or in or whatever it might be. So completely life-changing. I learned so much about myself. And more importantly, I built a habit that I think is one that's key to future proofing yourself. The ability to be uncomfortable, being uncomfortable is, is, is critical in that regard. And trust myself in those moments where I will find a way. I'll I'll find a way to kind of get through, get round, get under, to exist, to be. And even if it does go wrong, I'll pick myself up and I'll be able to go again tomorrow because it ain't all that bad, you know. And and that whole process, seeing yourself through that enough times, the the trust and the confidence that gives you is unreal.
0: Because the word fear that you have mentioned there as well, I mean it it plays on everybody's mind and in respect to being great leaders – there's always a fear in the background. Tell us about the fear with leadership and the fear, whether it's you know, saying something that needs to be said, the courage to say something that needs to be said. Tell us the importance of, of fear in leadership, but also how to overcome some of those and the breakthroughs that can happen.
1: Yeah, look, I think every leader's set of fears are different. Almost every leader I've met has some kind of imposter syndrome, more often than not, you know, an aspect of, oh, you know, I'm worried about being caught out. I'm worried about not having all the answers. I'm worried about my strategy not working, you know. And there's always fear. There's fear because in part, and I think it's exacerbated leading in this moment in time, there's an extraordinary amount of uncertainty. Mm. You know, we are living at such a tumultuous time where the pace of change is unlike anything we've seen before and chaos appears to be the new normal. And so there's a lot of fear associated with that because there's very little guidebook for what we're going through at the moment. So unsurprisingly, there's a lot of fear associated. And one of the things I always encourage people to think about is how does this conversation get more particular for you? So versus sitting in this general broad sweeping statement about fear, what is it for you that sits uncomfortably beyond your right here, right now, that is something that you know you need to bring into your wheelhouse? To achieve that next stage of impact, to get that next promotion, to be able to achieve those new goals you've set for yourself, they're the fears that you need to go to work on. It's not fear for the sake of fear. It needs to be fear with a purpose. And, you know, those things might be, you know, being able to have tough conversations with people. It might be, you know, I need to step into being authentic and vulnerable with my team in order to engender a level of trust and help them to understand me. It might be that I've got to be bold and take a risk because we're in a point in our business cycle or the market where our back's up against the wall. And if I'm not bold, I'm not sure if we're going to be around. You know, whatever it might look like, the mm. more important thing is you name them for yourself and you start to go to work. And my only advice to leaders who are prepared to do that work is be kind to yourself while you do it. We often set ourselves up for, for failure with how, sorry, we often set ourselves up for failure with how we approach this because we go too hard too fast. So an example of one that comes up a lot when I talk with leaders is public speaking. Yes. Public speaking is really important for a lot of stages of leadership because you're leading people, you've got to be able to address them, you've got to be able to face stakeholders, shareholders, okay. yep. all of it. But it's a very real fear for people at a quite an extraordinary degree. And so the thing I would say to someone who was tackling that fear is do not start by your first attempt at conquering that fear being debuting in front of an audience of 500 people with no notes like go easy on yourself. That's like going to the gym cold and trying to bench press weight. Like you were 200 kilos or something. It's going to hurt. You probably never go back to the gym. So what we need to do is think about, okay, how do we start really small? The smallest way we can maybe start that is going, Hey, there's a conference on, I'm going to put my head up and ask a question.
0: Yes.
1: Or I'm going to offer the next time we have a team meeting to open the meeting and offer five minutes commentary on something that's happened in the business this week. Mm -hmm. Or the next time we have a speaker in, I'm going to offer to to give the vote of thanks. We've got to start small and build from there. And that's really important. And it's also really important that we share that we're doing that with our team. Because in us making that journey public as leaders, we give an extraordinary amount of permission for others to walk their own journey. And we make it okay to sit in the awkwardness and the discomfort of fear. And we invite this collective celebration of individual progress. And that's a really healthy and fabulous thing to be doing in cultures.
0: Mm. I love that. Two more things. One, the importance of modeling in leadership or to be successful in whatever field you're in. I mean, you're a big believer of not having to reinvent the wheel every time but to go and seek those who are already doing something and doing it well and modeling that behavior in order to get to where you want to be faster. Your thoughts on that? Yeah,
1: I think everyone should have mentors and role models. I think it's a really powerful way to learn in part because it's – It's learning in context. You know, it's one thing to read it in the textbooks or it's another thing to listen to it, you know, from the horse's mouth or something like that. But to see someone actually putting it to work in practice, whether they're leading a community organization, whether they're running their own business, whether they're an example of someone who's in your company that runs another department or whatever it might be, you know, reaching out to someone like that and saying, hey, I really admire how you do X. Would you be up for me? catching up with you occasionally, asking you some questions. I'd love to go to work on that skill. or I'd love to become better at that. I think that's one of the most fabulous ways to supercharge your own learning and development. And it's been a huge part of my own journey.
0: And most people are open to that, aren't totally. they? Totally. So, I mean, because people
1: have done it for them. yeah, They want to pay it forward because people paid it forward for them.
0: Oh, I agree. I think it's such a, a great tool to use. And I think it can fast-track people's you know road to success or road to wherever they want to be a lot quicker than doing some other things. But uh, anyway, I I read that about you and I thought, yes, I'm 100% behind that Mm. one. So Holly, tell me, where can people get a hold of you and your materials? Tell us a bit about that.
1: Yeah, great. So, anyone who wants to continue chatting, we've got firstly a free newsletter that drops into your inbox on a Monday. It's called Love Mondays. It's based on the insight that people hate Monday mornings. So we're a three-minute read to make sure the other ten thousand seven hundred and seventy-seven minutes of your week start, you know, on a better energy note by virtue of you know trying to trying to disrupt your Monday morning for the better. So you can head to www.holyransom.com to sign up for Love Mondays. We also run a series of epic leadership challenges. these are public leadership challenges. As I mentioned earlier, our goal is to play a role in democratizing leadership development. So what we've tried to do is crack it open, take it away from behind these giant paywalls and these networks of you know, big university brands and mm-hmm. make it accessible and create a community of people who want to do that work themselves. So we'll be announcing in October a whole series of challenges for 2023, wow. including a year-long kind of leadership development subscription. So we'd love anyone who wants to come and be a part of that community. We've got more than 2,000 leaders already who've journeyed through public challenges with us and are developing themselves as leaders and working on their skills and capabilities. But welcome anyone else who wants to come on that journey there. So again, you can sign up for your updates at hollyransom.com.
0: Sounds amazing. Holly, I could talk to you for hours about this. <laughs> right back But out. I know that we have things to we've got to go to. But listen, you've completely carried the conversation. I appreciate your time. And thanks so much. And appreciate you sharing your journey and your story.
1: Thank you so much.
0: Is there someone working in mental health who you'd like to be featured on the podcast? Are there more questions you want the answers to? Let us know what you want to hear. Get in touch with us by emailing any podcast suggestions to membership at anzmh.asn.au and be sure to stay up to date on our socials at ANZMHA on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Thank you very much for listening, and we look forward to sharing your next conversation.